Hi, Small Fortune listeners. Today, I have the first grape grower joining me. Um, we've been focusing on a lot of financial marketing and sales. Uh, of course, the wine business starts in the vineyard. And so today, Fred Peterson of Peterson Winery is joining us. And Fred is going to share with us the story of his experience as a North Coast grape grower over, if you can believe it, 50 years. Fred, thanks for agreeing to join. Thank you, Carol. Yeah, 50 years. I look in the mirror and I say, am I really that old? And apparently I am. But uh, yeah, it's yes. Yeah, 50 years. Oh. And yeah. Did you grow up in California? I don't, if I knew that, I don't remember. Uh, yes. Yeah. San Francisco. My dad's my fourth generation, but no family connection to grape growing or the wine business. Got you. We have a surprise visitor. I asked Mike Fisher to join us for a oh. minute. We're not, oh. yeah, just for two minutes. <laughs> hey, Mike. Hey, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sh oh Mike. hell, he's going to call me on uh, on my BS. But no, no, he's just coming on for a couple minutes and then he's getting off. I, Mike Fisher, uh, for listeners, is the business partner, my business partner, Global Wine Partners here in the St. Helena office and been around in about for as long as Fred Peterson. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, pretty much the, the same timeline. Yeah. No. And what's funny, and the reason I decided to just do this is because I, I probably met both of you about the same time, which was like maybe 25 years ago. But I, of course, I met you in separately in separate contexts. And so you're separate in my head. And so I, like last week, I'm meeting Fred Peterson for lunch. I don't bother to tell Mike about it. And then Fred and I are talking and he's like, oh yeah, I saw Mike. And I, you guys were at, Mike, where'd you go? You guys were at Davis together. So just real quick, tell us about when you were there together and, and what was up. Mike? Go for it, well, Mike. I, yeah, it was the group, a very good group. And we got pretty close in terms of that group that included Gosh, a bunch of like the big names, John Consgard, Lee Hudson, Kathy Corison, on and on. And we had a pretty good social group. We did a lot of stuff together and continued today until today. We had a party at, at Lee Hudson's house in August that we got a bunch of us got together. So it was a lot of fun at Davis and then continued on. And what year were you guys both in the master's program together? I don't remember. I actually got a second bachelor's. Uh, oh, I, I was lucky to get my first bachelor. <laughs> 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 no. Yeah, I just want to second what uh, Mike uh, said. It was, it's always better to be lucky than smart and timing is everything. Uh, and as I sent you my little uh, snippet of info, I remember very little academically at Davis, but the best thing was the people I met and even though in Mike's case, he was much smarter than most of his classmates because he went into the where you could actually make pretty good money and not stress and have to sell your soul to, to, to make a living. But oh, shit, I forgot my, my lost my train of thought that it was a great group. And so to this day, it's so wonderful to have those connections that started not quite 50 years ago, but pretty close. I started in 1970 in winter quarter of 76 and 
I had previous call, not very successful. And uh, <laughs> so they, they let me go in June of 78. They let me walk across the stage, even though my, I didn't actually get my diploma until the fall because I embarrassingly flunked the second quarter of organic chemistry. And they, God bless them, they waived it for me. So I got a degree. But nice. Uh, yeah. Well, so it was a good time to be there. And I joke that much if you're in the military and want to advance, the best time is to be in a war. Not that the wine business was in a war, but it was expanding in the late 70s. And as Mike will attest, we all got positions that in we probably shouldn't, but they were looking for bodies. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I've heard that story before. Anyway, I mean, Fred, I, we, you and I want to talk about your, your, cause of course, as you mentioned, Mike promptly took his enology and viticulture degree and, and went back into finance for Joe Phelps, <laughs> but you've been in, in the scrabbling around in the vineyards since. So Mike, thanks for joining us. I just okay, wanted to, good to talk to you, Fred, and we'll, uh, we'll probably see you soon. I hope so. Anyway. All right. Take care. Thanks. All right. I thought that would be fun, Fred. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So now I got to beat on your timeline because you had given me a kind of your, your sort of overall history with grape growing and it started in 74. Tell us about that. Well, actually, it started in 73 when oh. uh, my advisor at UC Santa Cruz called me in to said and said, Hey, Fred, I'm going over your transcript and it says here you're pre med. And said, Bob, that's, um, I don't think I want to do that anymore. And he said, that's a really smart decision because looking at your transcript, there's no medical schools that would take you. The follow-up question from, from Bob was, Lynn, if you don't want to go to med school, what are you here studying? And the honest answer would have been girls playing rugby and spending time at the beach. But I said, Bob, I'm, I really want to do something in agriculture, and but I'm not quite sure what and he said let's i think that's really good fred let me give you some advice why don't you take a little time off and figure out what you want to do and then come back to school because right now you're wasting our time and uncle sam's money and i was fortunate one of my classmates at uc santa cruz uh jonathan fry whose family has fry vineyards and biodynamic organic wines in mendocino yep. county um when he heard me complain about how I didn't want to go back and live in the city, I wanted to do something in, in agriculture, um, offered me an uh, opportunity to come work on the family vineyard. He said, we can't really pay you, but you got room and board with the 12 fry kids. And there's some good ag program at the junior college, Mendocino Junior College. So I did that for a year. And thankfully, I hadn't wasted all my GI education benefits having a great time at Santa Cruz and decided <laughs> to go back to UC Davis. But in the meantime, I went back to Santa Cruz and worked a year at Bargetto Winery. And that's when my first actual, I got the job there. Uh, I called around, I harvested lettuce for a couple of days and realized this wasn't happening. <laughs> and there wasn't many wineries or vineyards down there, but I called and spoke to Larry Bargetto and to see if he had any connections and he said, not really, but I have this acre Pinot Noir vineyard near my house and it needs to be hoed. And I said, I'm your man. So I, <laughs> I hoed the vineyard in a day and he was impressed and offered, they were putting in a new sewer system, offered me a job digging ditches, which I gladly took because I figured something. And then 
I was so fortunate. Two of the folks working at Bargetta Winery, and you probably know both of them, Bill Dyer and Donine, formerly oh. Sam, now Dyer. They, yeah. Bill was working in the cellar and Donine was doing all the lab stuff. And they were going off to France. And I got, Bill and I became friendly over lunch and on breaks. And he asked me if I was interested in working in the cellar. And that's how I got my first winery job. Uh, and Larry Bargetto had bought this property on Vinehill Vineyard, which a couple of years later was bought by Tommy Smothers. But my job in 74 was put together a crew and harvest and it's a sample and then harvest this 10 acre hillside, old Sylvaner, you know, we uh, Pinot Chardonnay and Johannesburg Riesling vineyard. Uh, so that's, that was my first winery job, made application to go to UC Davis. I was supposed to, but I decided to take a little bit of time and go to New Zealand and Australia and see what they were doing down there. I was supposed to go to both countries at the tail end of my cruise in Western Pacific and Vietnam in 1971, but my ship was caught in a typhoon in, outside of Hong Kong and run aground. So I didn't oh, get to good do that. Lord, that's a whole other podcast. Jeez. Okay, carry and, on. Uh, but I said I'd saved up some money and I thought now's the time to do it. I went to New Zealand, worked to harvest at a winery in Gisborne in, on the North Island in a few months and then spent a couple of months eating and drinking my way across South Australia, South New South Wales and South Australia. And then came back, worked actually Bill and I'll give a shout out, another shout out to Bill. He they came back from France and he was working in the cellar at Charles Krug and Donine was working at Inglenook. And I asked Bill if he could get me a job at Charles Krug. And, and, and I'll never forget. He said, yeah, Fred, I can get you a job, but I never want you to come back and complain. I got you the job because, and I, cause that place is anyway, I won't go into the particulars at the time. Um, so that's how to save money to go back to Davis. So that's, and I pruned, I, I think I mentioned in my little, right up to you, Carol, that back in 1975, and most people, when I tell them this fact, they think I'm crazy, but the single largest red varietal planted in Napa Valley in 1975 was Petite Syrah. And the valley still had, I, I made some money pruning what we'd call mixed black or mixed white vineyards, these old head trained vineyards that went into jug wine that until the late 60s and early 70s, Napa still produced. So that's going way back. And then, as you said, then I went back to Davis in 76 and left in 78 to go down to Monterey County, where I worked. I was a vineyard supervisor for Paul Masson for a brief period. Um, Paul Masson? That was by, I grew up in Saratoga. Oh yeah, that was a yeah, that was a case of yeah, one more label that I got run into the and I tell people I took the job because my advisor and dear friend Dr. Cook at Davis, when I was getting ready to graduate, he said, Fred, I've got this great job opportunity down in Salinas Valley. He goes, he goes, the you'll learn a lot. He goes, the manager is an asshole, but you'll learn a lot. <laughs> And was he right about the manager? He was right about the manager. And I did learn a lot. And <laughs> But I also learned that I couldn't work for a winery whose wines I didn't want to drink. And aside from the dessert wines they made, which were pretty good, 
their wines didn't do much for me. And working for a big corporation, I realized, was not in my future. And I used to tell people that our checks were literally came from Park Avenue, New York. And if you had issues on your on payroll, you'd call the office back there and they go, you're calling from where? And you'd say, solely that. Where's that? And again, uh, after I realized that, when, and I love the Salinas uh, Valley, but I hated the wind and every, there's a sign. I don't know if it's still outside of Soledad that reads, may the wind always be at your back. <laughs> and um, it just played havoc on my nerves. And when I learned of an opportunity at Mount Eden Vineyards in the Santa Cruz mountains through another Davis friend that, that I uh, ended up initially being the vineyard manager and assistant winemaker at Mount Eden. The following year, the winemakers hired moved on, and Dick Graff, who was running the show up there at the time, offered me the maker position and the general manager position. I stepped up and did that until I moved up to Dry Creek Valley in 1983 and been here ever since. And what did uh, viticulture look like in Dry Creek Valley in, in 1983? It, it seems like a lot was starting to happen there. I it was, know. yeah. In the here in Dry Creek, Alexander Valley, the planting began. The prunes started coming out, and the grapevines went in. Starting in the mid '60s, Dry Creek Valley. It happened a little bit later, probably not till the early '70s. Um, but yes, there it was transitioning. And the other fact that people don't believe, but it's true, is that up until probably the late 70s, there was a lot more Carignan planted in Dry Creek Valley than mm -hmm. Zinfandel. And cool. that was most of the wine from Dry Creek Valley and actually throughout the North Coast. Napa obviously did the transition sooner. And then, but here in Dry Creek, it was what we, back in the day, we used to call Dago Red. It was the everyday drinking wine that was served in North Beach Italian restaurants and any event. And then varietal, again, in the 70s, the whole notion of wine and how cool it was and varietals. So the it, by the mid-70s, Dry Creek was transitioning from both prunes, but also the old head train, mixed blacks and mixed whites to Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet. Unfortunately, one of the things, you know, Davis gets a bad rap for a lot of stuff. Um, uh, one of the things it promoted, the farm advisor promoted, because uh, weather-wise, Dry Creek looked really good for Cabernet. So a lot of uh, Cabernet went into the, uh, into the valley floor, the alluvial soils. And uh, you may want to edit this segment. But <laughs> it's up to, up to you. Very odd. We'll decide later. Okay. A classmate from Davis, Nick Martin, when he graduated, he got the winemaking job at Lambert Bridge Winery and, and lived in the, he and his then wife, Patrice, lived in the house on Lambert Bridge and had these great parties. And we'd come over from Davis and <clears throat> one autumn day, um, I went into the kitchen to get some coffee and Nick was there and he said, uh, morning, Fred. He goes, I'm, I've got to go over to the winery and check the malolactic fermentations. Do you want to tag along. And I was like, oh, sure. Nick was in the lab and I was wandering around in there at the time, very new fancy cellar. And a few of the tanks, the Oak Uprights had this, the little chalkboard that said LD Red. 
And I, I went in, I was puzzled and I went into the lab and said, hey, Nick, what are those tanks that say LD Red? And he goes, oh, that's the Valley Cabernet. We call it Limp Dick Red. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, no, we're not cutting that. Oh, I refuse. <laughs> that became our, and I don't know if Mike uh, Fisher remembers, but that was our moniker for any weedy, thin red wine was LD Red. So most of that, and it gave Dry Creek Valley a bad rap for Cabernet because it was planted in, it wasn't, the climate was not conducive. The soil was not conducive and it produced these rampant, overly vigorous vines that the fruit just was weedy and tobacco-y and nasty. And mm. but now the good cab, much like I grow in our vineyard on Bradford Mountain, yeah. comes from the hills. The climate is a little bit cooler in Dry Creek than Alexander Valley, even though people think Dry Creek is warmer. But because our valley is narrower and has its richer soil, so the bottomland does not grow good Cabernet. And frankly, the Chardonnay is nothing to write home about either. The Sauvignon Blanc's pretty good, but anyway. Got so it. By I the ran. way, so, side comment. I, I saw you last week. You very generously gave me a bit of wine, of which I've opened one bottle, which was your Bradford Mountain Zinfandel. And I just want to uh, tip my hat. Not that I'm any kind of an expert, but oh my God, was that delicious. Yeah, th thank you for saying so, because I love Zins and we make six of them. But if I could only drink one, it would be the mountain one because it combines that wonderful Zin fruit, but it's got the structure and the depth that you get from the mountain vineyard. So. Absolutely lovely. Highly recommend you go to petersonwinery.com <laughs> and order up. It's very nice. <laughs> so when did you plant that vineyard and how did that come about? I was, I loved Mount Eden vineyards and I'd still be there today, perhaps. But the ownership was founded by Martin Ray in the late 50s, I believe. And I swear that he chose, the partners were wonderful people, but it's the old, I, I swear Martin picked the investors under the divide and conquer theory because they could never agree on anything and it was driving me crazy. And Shalone at the time, Dick Graff has had an on again, off again involvement with Mount Eden. He loved the place. He loved it because it was a great place to party if nothing else <laughs> up on the mountain. But he, the ownership changed in 82. Shalone was setting it up to be much like Edna Valley or Acacia or... Carmenet, one of the one of the crown jewels in there, and they were looking to find a suitable buyer, which the partners did agree on that. They realized that it wasn't happening under their under their ownership, and and something needed to change. Unfortunately, what changed is the majority stockholder had financial bumps and ended uh -huh. up selling to this crazy. Doctor who lived in New Jersey, long deceased, so I can say his name, Dr. Giampero de Mallorca, who hated <laughs> Dick and Shalone. And so that went off the table. And it's, geez, I'm not, they're not paying me enough to deal with all the headaches and the BS. And mm -hmm. I mentioned to Phil Woodward, the then president of Shalone, my my unhappiness and his neighbor. And actually at the time, Bill Hambrecht was, had become a pretty significant investor in Shalone over a game of tennis. Uh, Bill Hambrecht mentioned to Phil that he was just 
closing on this property on uh, Bradford Mountain up in the hills west uh, western side of Dry Creek and uh, he needed someone to plant a vineyard and asked Phil if he knew anyone who might be interested and good and my name came up so that was the connection between myself and Bill Hambrick and that was late 1982 it's right after harvest harvest from hell at mount eden due to rain and how cold it was mm -hmm. um, i went saw the property i loved dry creek before i saw the potential vineyard it was up in the hills i loved from my time at mount eden bacchus loves the hills I, the, to me that's where the great wines come from interviewed with Bill. I mentioned that I didn't want to live in town and could I put a house up on the vineyard, which he graciously allowed me to do. And the there is a lot more history, Carol, but the rest is. <laughs> but yeah, we're in the 80s and we've got 15 more minutes. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. My first charge was to plant the vineyard on Bradford Mountain which I did. And unfortunately I planted uh, at the time, AXR was the mm. whatever planted. And that's what I planted, even though I knew it was a mistake. And, uh, but we got a good almost 25 year run out of the vineyard before I had to replant it in my portion in 2007. But in the meantime, the good news at that time was the investment banking business and, and all of Bill had all these great successes. So uh, I went on a buying spree for Bill, buying vineyard properties. At the time, he had Belvedere Winery in Russian River Valley. We ended up, I ended up managing 650 acres of producing vineyard on about 2,000 acres of property in Alexander Valley, Dry Creek Valley, Russian River. Wow. Went into buying this large property on the western edge of Anderson Valley, what we called the Floodgate Vineyard. And yeah, and I was also, I was thinking back recently, now that I'm well into my seventies from 85 to 90, Bill was also a big investor in Ridge. And I met the Ridge folks when I was at Mount Eden and they were looking for someone to, they needed to do some changes in the vineyard and needed someone to help them with that. So from 85 to 90, I was the vineyard manager for Montebello Vineyard, consulted for Oh, yeah, a few bunch of vineyards, including uh, Chimney Rock and Napa Valley. And oh, geez, what's the one up on Atlas Peak? The doctor, senior moment here, Carol. Anyhow. Oh, are we talking about? Oh, yeah, I know. I know yeah, the one. Yeah, yeah. Stagecoach? So, stagecoach? Uh, yes, Stagecoach. Yes, yeah. Stagecoach. Okay, oh, yeah. excellent. So, All right. Good Lord. Uh, you, you've seen it. Yeah. So but I, the thing for me is like, how in the hell did I do that? And Raised three, I guess the kids suffered, but the vineyards. <laughs> <laughs> you got one of them running your winery now, so you couldn't yeah, have done, right. screwed up too badly. It's payback for my middle son. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so a lot of, and, and I think, as I said previously, we've gone from, I think it's how things turned full circle in terms of vineyards. The technology is great. We went, as I mentioned, from all vineyards being dry farmed in the North Coast because you didn't have um sprinklers and such you didn't have water then we got drip so even in the hillsides people could use drip and then we fertigation and all this technology which was good but we lost sight of the fact that site trumps everything else that in fact i used to argue with my french uh, associates and friends when they would say well, you can't grow good wine in california you 
you irrigate and the wine just makes the wine sheet. And that's what in Burgundy or Bordeaux or any place in the northern France, I said, you get summer rain. So it doesn't matter to the vine if the water comes from a black tube or it comes from the sky. Water is water. And uh, right. having said all that, which is was true, but there's something to be said, I believe, for producing more intense wines by dry farming when, where you can. Soils become, we used to really, I wouldn't say totally discount soil, but it was pretty secondary. Now, soil health and soil microbiome and yep. you know, all these things. And I've become a believer. We, I, 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 My vineyard is dry farmed. I don't mm. fertilize. It's compost and cover crop. And when I get pretty good yields. So I think that what I've seen in my 50 years is we've gone from being very primitive to having all the science and technology, which is a good thing, but then going back to, if you believe in terroir, and I do, it really comes down to the site. And people talk about terroir, and I don't want to knock the more successful Napa wines or wineries who make these big-ass wines that they all taste the same. <laughs> <laughs> But to me, if you believe in terroir, the differences are very subtle. And, and those come about from site and the intention of the grape grower and then obviously the winemaker into capturing those minute differences that that is what terroir is about. Yeah, I believe that, you know, both in the winery, I mean, we've trademarked zero manipulation, which people roll their eyes and you know, I say, well, you could have trademarked it too. It's not, <laughs> we beat you to it. It's not that our wines are better or spiritually more pure because we don't filter or fine, but it's the intention, intentionalness of less is more that what ends up in the bottle is as one, one day I'll, I'll digress uh, briefly, uh, Carol, one day, uh, right after harvest, Dick Graff stopped in at Mount Eden, and uh, we went over the, the the plan for the wines. And I was supposed to rack the Chardonnay that week, and um, my one of my tractors, the rear end had gone out, and I was fixated on getting the tractor up and running. And Dick said, "Well, Fred, you get, you did you rack the Chardonnay like we were talking about?" I said, "Ah, no, nah, Dick, I didn't get to it because I really want to get this tractor up and running." and I'll never forget. He, he said, okay, Fred, he goes, you see that bottle of wine over there? And I go, yes. So what? <laughs> he said, what's in that bottle of wine is everything the winemaker did or didn't do. And when he or she did or didn't do it. And so if you don't have a sense of urgency about what you're doing here, get the fuck out. And that was, that was a real wake up call. I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> Uh, but it's true. What's in the bottle, obviously, as one of my mechanics said many decades ago, you can't make chicken soup out of chicken poop. You can't make great wine out of out of uh, mediocre grapes. So you got to start with the good fruit. And then the job of the winemaker is to be a grape whisperer, if you will, and listen to what Mother Nature gives you from that vineyard and that vintage and use techniques that capture what's there. And I don't want to get all too touchy and feely, although I am a, a UC Santa Cruz guy. Yeah, but, yeah, you're a retired hippie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Yeah, I wish I was retired. Maybe I'm retired <laughs> as a hippie, but not as a... That's so, what I mean. <laughs> uh, 
I don't know if I, and again, at the end of the day, since you consult and uh, people on business transactions, vineyards have to be, you know, we talk about sustainable and ultimately the economic sustainability of vineyards. And, and again, I don't want to cry poor me. Our Cabernet on the mountain, I sell a little bit for $3,200 a ton and it's every bit as good as stuff yeah. over county line that sells for over 10000 but the good news is uh, the vineyard is profitable, largely because I manage it myself. And again, keep the inputs down because there's only three things. And this is something that one of my professors said at Davis, and it's as true as true now then. There's only three numbers that matter when it comes to the grape growing. And it's how much does it cost to farm an acre? How many tons per acre can you expect on average? And how much are the grapes worth per ton? And those things determine whether it makes sense. And sadly, for a lot of people, and again, it's amazing what you can do on the back of an envelope with a pencil. If the wine's worth enough, then the grapes are worth enough. But at right. the end of the day, it's it's finding folks that are going to pay that much for a bottle of, of your wine. And, and I think I may have to have you back because I would love to talk about your the winemaking, the winery part of that, your experience, but we've done a, a great job of covering 50 years in, in grape growing, which, and it's been fascinating. And, and I absolutely hope you'll agree to come back later on the wine company. Before we wrap it up, I just, is, what are you, what are your, of course, you can't talk about growing without talking about the climate issues that we're confronting. What does your crystal ball say about the right direction to sail forward? Is it just make everything as as hardy as possible or this dry farming and all the rest of it? What are your thoughts? That's, yeah, a good question. And perhaps I'm whistling past the graveyard here, Carol, but one of the things that I hope for is coastal California because when people ask me about the climate out here, I said it, it, there's two factors. There's the Central Valley, which heats up in the summer, uh, gets really bloody hot. As we all know, it creates low pressure and nature pours a vacuum. It sucks in the air from the Pacific. And the te water temperature is rarely above 55 degrees. And this cold air condenses and forms the fog and we get the coastal breezes. So I've noticed even in the, was it two summers ago? It was the coldest summer recorded in San Francisco in 150 years. So wow. even though global warming and climate change is real, we'll see what the direct effect on coastal vineyards is. Having said that part, yeah, we, we bandy about all these words like resilient. And I think uh, for me, even the least rain we got was two years ago, 22, 23, we got the miracle rains, 21, 22, we got... 35 inches. Our normal rainfall on Bradford Mountain is about 50 inches or average. Mm -hmm. I, I, you can't use the word normal anymore because that's Correct. out the window. But in 2021, we got half. We got 25 inches. But because of the compost and the fact that that's enough to have my vines are deeply rooted as they can, the vines didn't suffer any ill effects from the drought, either yield-wise or the vine health. So I think creating an environment, using proper rootstock, 
building the soil up, I think that will go a long way in mitigating a lot of the effects of, of climate, obviously. The other thing, and we've had 10 years of, for us, I hate higher alcohol wines, but I also, we don't de-alkalize or anything. So the last decade, we've made wines in the high 14s, 15, even a couple of our Zins have been 16% alcohol. Oh, which, my. Uh, um, there's still balance, but it's, I'm at that age now, Carol, where I like to occasionally have that third glass and not pass out in my chair. And so I resemble I, that remark <laughs> that uh, this year, the one you always watch what you pray for, because your prayers might be answered uh, 22 was the earliest and one of the lightest harvests in my 50 years. Mm. 2022. Yeah. 2023 was the latest and the largest, but oh we're wines that have our lower alcohol, but still have incredible flavors. What's my point there? I, I can't, I don't know. Maybe we're going away from that because climate does, even though the trajectory is what it is, hopefully we're going into a cycle where we have, we don't have quite the early harvest. We don't have that heat late August, early September, which pushes the sugars up much more quickly than the acidities drop. And we make we make wines that have higher alcohols. So hopefully that we could not do that. But it, again, we don't dealkalize. We don't filter or fine our red wines. Mother Nature has is the biggest determinant factor on those numbers. But you sound pretty sanguine about the whole thing. So that's podcast listeners who might be in the grape growing business. We'll probably take some take some comfort from that, Fred. <laughs> After well, fifty years I, of this, you yeah, look at yeah, me it's the funny, future Carol, and go, you know what it's going to be. What it's going to be. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's for me. Agricultural risk. I just live with it. I one my former partner was a finance guy and venture capital and this and that, and I couldn't handle that risk. I don't. I finally sold all my mutual funds and I don't quite have gold buried in the backyard, but because fi financial risk drives me crazy, it keeps me up at night. What mother nature delivers. Yeah, I guess I am more sanguine. It's, we all have different risk tolerance and different, what's the word, sensitivities about what keeps us up at night. And it's a case of raw, Uh There you go. We will see. Fred, thank you so much for joining me. And we will have to, like I said, I'd love to have you come and talk about the winery and, and we'll do that next time. Hi, Small Fortune listeners. If you found this episode enjoyable, we'd really love to have you as a follower. And we're on almost all of your favorite podcast platforms. So if you could take a moment and subscribe or follow, we'd really appreciate it. Also, if you have any questions for Carol, please email us at smallfortunepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. I wish yeah. us well. We have Winter Wineland Weekend where I have to take nice pills and, and be nice to people and so we can <laughs> hopefully sell wine and stay in business. Oh, yes. man. <laughs> oh, that was the toughest part of the job, I bet. Oh, yeah. I would. Did you ever get to meet? He fortunately for himself sold the winery. Did you ever meet Jacques Schlumberger? Of I did, but it was, it's got to have been in the early 90s. And I've wiped that hard drive. Yeah. And where did he, he got talked into buying Jean-Jacques Michel at Domaine Michel, got 
Jacques Schlumberger somehow suckered him into putting money into the winery. And anyhow, we we come from different backgrounds, Carol, but somehow we bonded a little over the whole agony and r- rarely ecstasy of the wine business. And I, I can't remember why we, we were talking. Maybe he had a question for me or something, but he had just come back from a sales trip to the East Coast and we were commiserating about it. And I said, Jacques, I go, that's the beauty of the wine business. I go, rich, poor, expensive wines, inexpensive wines. I said, we all have to kiss enough ass to get it. So, <laughs> which I think he was slightly offended by. <laughs> 